Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Victoria Wick, who is the epitome of the rags to riches American dream story. She is an author and business owner. Victoria, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. And I have to tell you, I love the title of your your podcast and the purpose of your podcast, which is, you know, we should all dare to dream and live the dream if possible, right? Of course, of course. And that is exactly what you did and what we're going to get into. So we actually like to jump right in. If you could start with telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you like to do for fun, that'd be great. Yeah. So uh, my parents brought me here to America uh, when I was very young in my early teens because they had four girls. And uh, at the time in South Korea, which is where I was born, um, women didn't have a lot of opportunities uh, in fact, women were highly encouraged not to uh, go to college. You know, they were considered highly educated if they went to high school, basically. So since he had four girls, he felt that the opportunity he wanted his girls to have opportunities. And if they chose to be um, simply a mother or a housewife, it should be their choice and not the society's choice. So he brought us here. Um, upon arrival, uh, he found out that all his assets were frozen in both countries. He had no money, that, you know, at all. In those days, you, it was illegal for you to take the money out of the country, even if it's your own money. So we had to start our lives over here. And I didn't speak a word of English. My father didn't speak a word of English. So life, you know, dreaming about American dreams seemed very daunting at the time. But um, having from that start. I went ahead and um, you know started my own business, uh, turning my passion for jewelry design into a business. And uh, as of 2017, when my bio was written, because you know I have a book coming up, um, I had done over 500 million dollars in retail sales, which is um, it's a, it's a number I never imagined like uh, I would do. I never even dreamt that number, but here I am. So. Um, I like to help people. Uh, I like to encourage people to follow their dreams, however ridiculous it sounds at the time, because it's just my country. Yeah, yeah, there we go. I love that. Thank you for that introduction. Just real quick, tell us a bit more about your motivation. So we know you had a kind of rougher upbringing. What really gets you up and keeps you going every day? Yeah, so basically when uh, my parents came here, uh, until my parents came here, I spent an unlimited amount of time with my mom because my mother, didn't, you know, women were not allowed to go to work outside. They were, you know, looked down upon if they worked outside. In fact, not only if they were looked up, down upon, but their whole families would be looked down upon. So, you know, they didn't go to work. So one benefit of that society is that, you, got, you know, my mom was with me all the time. And I saw my dad quite often too because we were not – uh, poor, we were not really affluent, but we were upper middle class. And upper middle class in that culture, you know, had a maid or a driver, all that stuff. So I had all that. Um, when I came to America, my parents both, uh, as I told you, they had 30 bucks, seven, family of seven. So they both worked two to three jobs per person, Monday through Sunday. So I rarely saw my parents. I was the oldest of the five kids. So the day I landed in America, very next day, my parents started going to work at six o'clock in the morning, and they didn't come home until about 
10 o'clock at night, so I rarely saw them. So after I got highly educated, uh, you know, I worked through um, college. You know, I, I basically started working full-time since I was 15. Um, I got decent jobs and all, but I thought to myself, in order for me to keep on getting promoted, I had to keep on working longer and longer hours, which meant that I would hire better quality uh, nannies to help to take care of my kids. And that was the one thing that I felt like I was robbed from. I didn't have a childhood. I didn't have any parents by the time you know, I was 14, 15 years old. So that was a non-negotiable for me. I really needed to be a mother. And I wanted to, my family life just didn't exist once I got here. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? I'm doing the same thing to my kids that my parents did to me. They did it involuntarily because they didn't have a choice. But I had choices. Although a lot of people would argue that you don't have a choice, but I felt like I had choices. So I had to take a chance. You know, I was probably about your age when I started my company. And everybody I knew told me, you know, you're crazy. You know, you have an MBA. You know, you, if, you, if you start your own business and you don't succeed in two years, no one's going to hire you because there's going to be like two years of blank sheet there. And, uh, you know, I was highly discouraged from starting my own business, you know, because the opportunity cost of leaving your job, uh, the day job was very high. But I felt I had to choose it. I chose it. And, um, and then I thought, you know, listening to all these people telling me how I'm going to fail, like they were all counting whether you're going to fail, completely go bankrupt in six months or two years. That was the prevailing thought people <laughs> all around me. I thought, you know what? There's a 90% chance I'm not going to make any money. And as long as I'm not going to make any money, I might as well do what I love to do. At least I'll enjoy my life being broke, you know? Yeah. So, so I love jewelry. Uh, I never could afford it, but I love jewelry. Um, and so I decided to start my company there. So that's what got me going. I love it. And so just curious, you met so much opposition from the people that you cared about. And there was like, you were still really young when you started your company. And there's the risk of going broke again. And you experienced being broke when you came to America. Right, right. right. And so you had all this fear. You had all this opposition. But you still made your first sales. And I want you to talk to me about the hurdles you encountered making those first sales. Like, was, was there a marketing issue? Was there a sales issue? Or oh, yeah. did it All just... of the above. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. Um, this podcast should be like a 10-hour podcast. Okay, so when you don't have any money, of course, you can't market yourself. And you are too young to remember this. In fact, that you weren't even born when I started my company. Um, but back in the 80s, the culture, overall culture all over the world is you go with the brand, like you go with the Campbell suit, um, you know, instead of like a, like a boutique brand, you go with IBM computers, you know, you go with um, General Electric, you know, whatever, you go with the name brand that's been there. So as a person starting your new company, you have very little chance of getting any traction, right? And uh, there were like three TV stations, NBC, ABC, CBS, I think, uh, there were no cable stations, and there, we didn't have internet. So, you know, the only way uh, a lot of people would start their company, this is why the failure of it was so high, because you would advertise in the papers, you know, and then in order for you to actually advertise, you would have graphic designers, you know, do the graphics, you would have your catalogs already printed instead of like on the internet. You know, those catalogs cost $50,000 or more. So I didn't have the money to do that. So, you know, but I didn't give up 
And, um, you know, you just, I think I was kind of street smarts, you know, back then, because I thought, okay, well, how can I, first of all, borrowing money from my friends, family, or a bank, even if they were, you know, willing to give you money, and borrow all that money before you tested the market, before you actually knew that your jewelry for any reason whatsoever was attractive to anybody, was stupid. Yep. So I thought, how do I get my idea for jewelry into, you know, how do I even test to see if anybody wants, wants it at all? So since I didn't have money to make samples, now jewelry samples cost a lot of money. Like if you gave me a ring design or, you know, a pendant design and you, it was somewhat complicated. It didn't just have a single stone. It had like, a, let's say a floral leaf or a, a honeybee or something like that. The mold, the original mold to make that is about $1,000. So if you have 10 designs, you're looking at $10,000, okay? This is before you pay for the gold for that thing, okay? So you can see um, if you did 20 designs, that's like $20,000 before you found out anybody wants anything from you. And so what I did was I actually, you know, rendered um, my designs instead of sending it to like a, somebody to make the mold. I then went to the local stores like Neiman Marcus and Saks Fifth Avenue. I, in, living in LA, I had two of them, you know, within 20 miles of me. So I went over there and with my little sketchbook and I told, I asked to meet with the assistant department manager because I figured department manager might be a little snobby, you know, in a store like that, they may not give you the time. So I asked, you know, assistant manager, um, and I said, you know, I'm a, a student, I don't have any business, I don't have any experience, and I'm a, a little bit embarrassed to show you this, but, you know, I aspire to be a designer someday, you know, uh, supplying to somebody like, like you, and I just wanted to see if, uh, you know, what your opinion of it, you know, are the, is there anything here that's saleable, you know, and can you give me any, I'm not trying to sell you anything, I just want to get some feedback. And um, the first one I went to was Neiman Marcus, and the woman's like, oh, my God, these are beautiful. You know, like, we, I can sell this, like, right now. And I said, well, how much? for how much? And she goes, well, how much is it? We'll just sell it. And I was like, she goes, you know, people, our customers here, we sell to most of the Hollywood, and they don't want anything that's already out in the stores. They want something that's really unique and beautiful, and your designs are really beautiful. And, uh, you know, she went on and on and on. And so I left her my sketchbook. I quickly came home and sketched some more, and I went to their competitor right across the street at Saks Fifth Avenue on Rodeo and Wilshire, and um, I got a very similar response from her, and I thought, you know what? I had the good sense to realize that these two stores are not, first of all, these guys could be completely flakes. They could, they're assistant buyers. They didn't have the authority to buy anything, and secondly, um, their world is not real world because people I knew at that time 50 bucks, I mean, they'd have to ask 30 people before that, <laughs> you know, all, all of my yeah. friends were poor. So then I went to, you know, stores that are today's equivalent of like the Macy's at Nordstrom's. The Macy's and Nordstrom's were not out in California yet. Um, so I went to all the other stores and I came up with about eight styles that I felt like that's very marketable to massive amount of people. So, uh, you know, and so I basically test drove it, test drove my designs without having to make the samples. And, you know, so even to this day, uh, and from that point forward, I have never really risked money, no, not my money or anybody else's money. I'm a real believer in testing, tweaking, testing, tweaking. So when I finally had pretty good, um, you know, by the way, the Saks Fifth Avenue and Northern, I mean, uh, Neiman Marcus, 
uh, system buyers, they actually did come through. They came up with a bunch of, you know, money for me. So, and they weren't price conscious at all either. But when I first took my business trip, I didn't go to New York. I didn't go, to, you know, I didn't go to places, London or places where the big stores, like Saks Fifth Avenue, their headquarters is in New York. I didn't go there. I went to Dallas, you know, where a lot of the, the mid-tier, like Dillard's, JCPenney, a lot of smaller stores were kind of like wholesalers, you know, a lot of distributors were there. Because I figure if I'm going to make any mistakes, I'd rather make a mistake in a smaller scale in a place where no one's going to really remember that you, you're really dumb, you know? Yeah. So I did all that. And, you know, I did make my share of my mistakes. So, you know, and, and so backing up a little bit, when I started my company, my goal wasn't to be a millionaire. It wasn't to like really, my American dream at that time was to be a mom where I could actually watch them grow, feed them, you know, clothe them and send them to school. And I thought if I could make $2,000 a month, I could do that. As long as I was willing to give up a dream of owning a home ever. And I didn't need a new car. I was driving a $2,000 Pinto. Like it used to blow up. I mean, <laughs> you're too young to remember that. But Pinto hatchbacks were very famous for blowing. Literally, the car would blow up. And oh. all, all the Pintos were recalled. Except like my model was like a year before the recall or whatever. So um, it had like 100,000 miles on it. And it was still running and um, it was like $2,000. I mean, even back then it was a lot of very little money for a whole car. So I thought, you know, as long as I didn't have to buy a new car um, and I didn't ever need to go buy a home, I could live on $2,000 a month because my rent was like $700 a month um, and I could feed them and I could sustain myself. And so that was my goal. And I thought, okay, in order for me to make $2,000 a month, how many customers would I have to have? What do I have to sell? And, you know, in those days, you had direct mail, like you would actually send them a letter. Mm -hmm. It was like nine cents to seven or eight, maybe nine cents to send the first class mail. And so I went downstairs to, you know, I couldn't buy like a mailing list. So I went downstairs to the, um, they used to have a travel agent that would actually book your tra travels. And they had all these books, you know, you didn't used to be able to actually book directly to, with an airline, you had to go to a travel agent. So the travel agency, um, you know, down the street, um, they always needed help, you know, like answering the phones or whatever. So I told them, like, I'll answer the phone for a few hours, but while, you know, you have downtime, I want to be able to use your book because the book has every gift shop, the buyer's name, uh, every department store. It had listings of, you know, because travel agents would have to tell people, like, where to go. Mm -hmm. So I basically wrote 50 letters a day, every day. Because I, you know, it, they were highly curated letters, by the way. I would say, for example, instead of saying, dear buyer, I would say, dear Timmy, you know, I saw your collection and it was, you know, let's say you're a buyer of Harrods London or something. I would say, you know, I saw your beautiful, you know, Spring Blossoms collection. They're absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, um, you know, I, I commend you for, you know, getting to such, such an amazing collection. And by the way, I happen to have something that could actually go with the collection. You know, I noticed that you didn't have bracelets to go with your, you know, beautiful earrings and pendant or whatever. So the person knew that I knew, you know, I would their standby name. They knew that I had done the homework. And so, you, you know, but even then your chances of actually getting a response was like. Slim. Yeah, but it was less than 5%. And, and I'm not saying positive response, just saying, hey, I don't want it or I need more information. Or thank you for writing, but, you know, it's not for us. And so you were finding these people 
you were finding people who had bought jewelry at the travel agency or how was yeah, that? Names of department stores, names of any gift shops. I see. Um, you know, so you know, there could be a, like a Marriott hotel has a, a store in the, you know, that they would actually have a name listed. Yep. So because my letters were so highly curated and they were very methodically written and I didn't, if I, and also I would also take a Polaroid picture of the jewelry that I have instead of creating a whole catalog. And if you take a Polaroid picture, like just a regular, you know, 35 millimeter camera, and I cut a deal with the local camera person, like they used to actually have a film and you have to print it. I got it for like 20 cents uh, a copy and I'd get like 10 or 15 of them. And I would send only four pictures. I would tell them, you know, hey, you know, it's brand new off the press. I didn't, you know, it didn't even make our catalog. But it's, you know, I selected these for you because your collection, you know, X had beautiful things or something. And I selected only four because four with four photos, three by five, would actually fit into a one, like a first class postage stamp. Um, if I'm sending, like if I'm dealing with somebody like in London or um, like France or, you know, wherever, I would send them by a fax. Used, fax used to be like today's text, you know, like a FedEx package. They would always give it to whoever the fax is supposed to go to. Yep. So, and the fax was cheaper than, it was like, uh, fax was like timed every six seconds or something. You know, international phone calls were pretty expensive. So I did that. And the reason I did that is because my kids would go to school from like um, 7.45. I'd have to be ready to take them to school at 7.45 because, you know, I'd be in the car at 7.50 and drop them off, come back. So I was always up about 5.30 in the morning. And I thought, okay, so kids are getting ready. You know, like they take some time to eat and all that. And I was always hyper. And I thought, you know, coming from Korea, I always knew there were different time zones. And I thought, well, someplace around the world, it needs to be like nine o'clock somewhere. And I found out that, you know, six o'clock in the morning, there are 53 countries in Europe that are somewhere between 11 o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the afternoon. So I could fax them all day and get a response. So I would fax them, drive my kids to school, come back, and there'll be some responses. Some, you know, usually when you fax them, they would actually send you a response. And uh, whenever they say, you know, thank you so much for sending me this, whatever, you know, the Heritage London person said that. Thank you so much. They're so, the Brits are so like proper. They would always yeah. do this thing. And I was like, she said, thank you so much for sending this, but it's not for us, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and they say it in such an eloquent way. And the minute I get a no from them, I'd get on the phone, call them and say, you know what? That was the best, the most eloquent rejection letter I ever got in my life. Thank you so much for sending me this rejection letter because or faxing me the rejection letter because the fact is 90% of the people don't even bother sending me the rejection letter. You know, they just like ignore you. So I said, since you took the time to look at my things, uh, just let me know why, why it isn't for you. Like if it, I mean, is it too, you know, garish or, you know, like just give me any tips that you might have so that next time I approach you, you know, I would actually try to have a dialogue with you because I really like, like you as a person. I mean, you, you're amazing. And um, it, it's amazing. They feel so bad and feel guilty because half the time they haven't actually looked at it. Or sometimes they're embarrassed to tell you like why, yeah. you know, but you start a dialogue. And when I do get them to talk to me about what they want, I usually close a sale. So, you know, starting small and I did end up opening Harrods and Gareth Lafayette. 
And then once I was there and I was in their catalogs all the time, um, I actually was, it was very easy for me to open Neiman Marcus Saks Fifth Avenue everybody else. And once I was there, I got a call from HSN asking me if I could be on their TV station. I was like, I don't really know. I always say no first. Um, so anyway, that's what happened. That is epic. <laughs> that is such an epic story. And I just, I love the entrepreneurial spirit that was in that story. The real, yeah. you scaled contextual personalized messages in like a bootstrapped way. And I just think that's such a beautiful thing. No money. No, it doesn't require a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. It's just the effort, the intention and the care went far and you see it in the results that you've gotten in business. So I love it. Well, awesome. Uh, Victoria, now we're going to jump into your dreams and goals. So I know you've already accomplished a lot in your life, but what is your vision for your life and your business going forward? So I wrote, uh, I wrote two books actually. Um, I always wanted to write a fiction because I living in South Korea and we didn't live in Seoul. I lived in a like a very small seaside beach town that didn't even get like a TV connection at all. Like we had a TV, but it was just, it was mostly snow. The only TV uh, we I ever saw was um, Muhammad Ali had a fight or something. And I remember like the whole town, they were like packed in my living room. It was the only one that actually came, uh, like the connection actually came to our, our house. But uh, all kidding aside, I saw the world, I saw my world through books. Um, you know, I, I was always a curious person and I always wondered, like, we, we would have this um, beach, like, I would always go by the, to the beach and watch the sunset. And, you know, when you watch the sunset, like, right when the horizon's there and the sun just, like, literally just drops right in there. And I used to think on the other side of that line, like, there has to be other kids like me somewhere, right? Like, how do they live? And so I saw the world through books mostly. And I still today read about, I say 50 books a year. I read about a book, you know, a week, sometimes two a week, and sometimes I'll skip a week or so. So what happened was I always wanted to write a book, uh, a fiction, and I didn't care if anybody read it or not. I, I wanted to get out of my system, so I, I wrote the book. And then when, in marketing that book, um, some of the people that I contacted, like, you know, the uh, publishers of like HarperCollins, you know, Random House, all these places, I went to some, kind of, some sort of a publishing um, trade show. And they were all like, you know what, Victoria, you sold over 10 million pieces of jewelry. Because some of them were actually my fans. They, they actually asked me, like, why are you writing a, a fiction when you should be writing a how-to book? And I was like, you know what? What worked for me back in 1989, um, you know, I could say that I was maybe lucky, maybe it worked because of the time at that time. Or I don't know what, but I can't guarantee anybody that if I wrote what I what I did, that it would work for somebody else today. And I don't want to take their money unless I could help them, right? So anyway, then COVID hit. So I wrote the second book. But here's my thing. Um, you know, I don't have any dreams of becoming bigger or making more money or anything like that. I, my husband and I told ourselves that if we hit a certain number, we're just going to basically exit the business so that we could enjoy life because both of our dads died pretty early. And, uh, but my father and my grandmother, my whole, like that whole side of the family, they would always say that you don't succeed alone. Even if you feel like you've done everything, there were forces behind you and ahead of you that helped shape who you are. 
So you are not actually really successful until you help other people be successful. So that's my mission now is I want to create many, many millionaires because what I did isn't extraordinary. Like I'm not a very smart person. I mean, I'm a probably, I'd say average to above average intelligence, but I had that grit and perseverance and that can do spirit that never left me, no matter what happened to me. And um, I would say that when things got really rough, like I went to school in an area where kids actually came to school with switchblades. I mean, there were always like gunfights and it was pretty rough because we didn't have any money. So we rented a place in, in a horrible place. And when I, you know, when you don't speak English, you really don't have friends either. So I'd come home and uh, I used to cry a lot because, you know, there was just like, I had four younger siblings that I had to take care of. My parents weren't around. Uh, life was pretty tough, but I would always say to myself, like, God did not put me on earth so I could just suffer like this and just die. And as long as I have, there, there has to be a purpose in my life. And as long as I'm breathing and I'm able to think on my own, I need to find out what the purpose is. And I need to figure out what am I supposed to be, what am I supposed to do right now? And that is like, I'm, I'm, the one thing I really believe in is instead of doing, you know having these dreams of you know I'm going to be a millionaire, a billionaire, I'm going to you know spend all this time with my family, I'm going to lose all this weight, all these grandeur you know thing, forget about all that. Think about what you can do right now today that can impact you tomorrow. So like if you um, want to, let's say you want to lose you know 30 pounds, you say to yourself, you know what? I'm just going to lose weight. I'm just going to be really serious about it. I'm going to be very intentional about it. I'm going to really get with it. Okay, this is your plan. It's not going to work. But if you said to yourself, you know what? I'm going to lose 10 pounds in the next 10 weeks. So if you say I have to lose one pound a week, and then you say to yourself, what do I have to do to lose one pound a week? You know, depending on what you weigh, you might need to cut down 200 calories a day or something. That's like a piece of toast or glass of wine or something you have to cut out. And even if you couldn't cut it out every day, you cut it out every other day. Or maybe you don't cut it out in the days you don't cut out, you walk around the block two times. You know, you may not lose 10 pounds, but you might lose seven pounds. Yep. But if you do that three times, you're still going to be better off. So success is almost addicting because, you, you know, the next time go around, you realize, oh, my God, I cheated. I didn't do it all day. And I still lost seven pounds. Right. So you, you do it right the next time and you might lose 15. Who knows? Yeah. But the point is, you got to start somewhere. And you have to think about the one thing that you can do that can impact that has the most impact in your life right now. So if you have time to bitch about your life, what's not working, you have time to do something right. You have time to do one thing right. And that's what you have to focus on. Right. Mm. So my dream is to see every Every American who dares to dream, help them you know, achieve that dream. I love that. I love specifically how you talked about breaking down your big, colossal dreams into small daily action steps, because that was, I was getting stuck there for a while of like, I don't know if you know who Grant Cardone is, but he he's like 10x, 10x, 10x. And so I was always going 10x with my mindset. And I was trying to do 10x with my action, but I couldn't do it consistently. And so it's just like, start where you are and be consistent and it will grow. And then you're, 
days and your actions will compound and then you'll see results. And so that, that shift really helped me a lot. So, well, you know, the other thing I would say is, in fact, I had a call this morning from a young lady that um, I gave her like a, a free call. Um, and by the way, your people can book a free call. And this woman had booked a free call. Uh, a, it, it'll say 15 minutes, but I actually book a 30 minute call. And um, she was telling me like, you know, she had done radio. She was in corporate. She was a fitness instructor. And now she teaches um, intentional um intuition and whatever coach she went through all these things and i said to her okay so number one at the end of you know if everything you dream about you know happened the right way what is the you know what do, how do you see your life at the end like what do you you know what do you aspire to do and you know, she had like really trouble like figuring out and i said to her you know if you cut out um in like in your like multi um family business. My husband actually used to be in that and then he retired. But usually if you have several properties, there's there's a few of them that will actually account for 80% of your total revenue. Mm -hmm. It's an 80-20 rule. So you're going to end up with, you know, 20% of your people that contribute 80% of your total revenue. Same thing with your products. Okay. So what you got to really figure out, you know, what efforts do I, do I give to you know, what is it that I do? What activities, what talents do I have that actually generates the most amount of impact at the end, either, you know, qualitatively or quantitatively. So like when I'm on TV, I have a monthly show every, every month when I'm on TV, you know, we have what we call planned failures because if you go to a store and let's say you go to a store and you're looking for a black shirt, you know, you're going to some event where it's it's like a black party or something on a black shirt. You're not going to go to a store that has all black all the time because you can't tell what's what. You'll go to a store where there's like a biggest selection of, you know, shoes or whatever. And so, but with the intention that you're going to walk out with a black shoe. The same, it's like most of the people who, who are buying, like a buyers of department stores who buy men's sportswear, for example, they know that 80% of their sales come from white cotton shirts basically every year. So, but then some white shirts sell better than others, right? Yeah. It could be the cut, it could be the fit, it could be the button down, it could be slight prints, it could be the color of white, who knows what. But that's, but if you're playing in the white space, understanding that 80% of your business in the summer months is going to be white shirts. If you're playing, but if you're in the lavender space, you're like, oh my God, like I can sell white shirts all day long, but I'm going to get some lavender, the eggshell, the pink, you know, and I want some, you know, purple, all, all this other stuff. And you're spending all this time on things that's going to maybe amount to 10% of your total business. You're completely wasting your time. Right. So what I'm saying is like, once you realize what your end goal is, you know, it's like, if you want to be a great writer, um, it's, you, it's better for you. And you know that for a fact, you want to be a writer, you want to you know, write a fiction, you want to write films or whatever, this is what you want to be in your life, you have no business becoming a waitress because that doesn't support, you're better off working at a new, you know, you might get better tips, but you're better off going to like a, a blogging operation or, you know, even if you're delivering coffee, because you're still making connections in the right places, at, you know, at a newspaper company, Right. Yeah. So once you understand what your goal is, you got to figure out how to keep on going forward. You know, it could be a little step backwards or forwards, but 
you know, you want to be a writer, but you're taking singing lessons with the money you don't have. You got a problem. <laughs> you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Exactly. It's not helping you. I know it sounds really common sense, but a lot of people don't seem to realize that. No, it's so true. You got to get focused. You got to get clear. And then you got to take intentional action right. towards that focused clarity. Now, I know, Victoria, that you're going to have to go here pretty soon because we're on a time crunch and we're about at your time. So, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for coming on the show. And if there are any last words that you had for the guests, you could say them well, now. I would say um, this is America. I know times are tough right now and I know times are uncertain. Uh, but I like to say the greatest fortunes in America actually were made during these tough times. Yeah. Uh, Warren Buffett has a, I don't know, you've heard this, you might have heard this. Uh, Warren Buffett has a really interesting saying. He says, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. <laughs> so, yeah. Right? So when times are good, everybody seems to be doing great. But, but uh, let me just tell you something. During the Great Depression, in, in the worst of times, some of the biggest companies that we know, Procter & Gamble, Burger King. Um, I mean, you, you go down the list of all these names that, you know, Trader Joe's. I mean, these companies started in a financial depression. Microsoft, Apple, they both started, you know, basically in 1989, same thing. So I would say that times are tough. It's uncertain, but these are the times when you can actually regroup and figure out, your, you, you don't have money to do 20 things. You, you got, you really have to figure out what your God-given gift is. And it could be that you're a great listener. It could be that you're a great organizer. It could be that you're, you know, whatever your gift is, because those skill sets are, you know, innate in you. Use it and um, believe in yourself because we're all equal. We came, we all came to this, this world with exactly the same. We're all equal and if you don't believe in yourself, no one is going to believe you, right? Absolutely. So you have to believe in yourself. And I would also say one really important thing is embrace failure because without failure, there is no success. And um, I will say that I screwed up on a lot of things. <laughs> and when people say, oh, my God, Victoria, you did this. And I was like, no, no, no. I actually made more mistakes than most people have, but I just had the perseverance to get up. You know, I, I think entrepreneurs, especially, and I know if you're doing this podcast, you probably hear people do this. It's really hard for people to leave corporate world, especially if they're making good money, corporate world to start their own business because it's like an uncertain, unknown territory. And then they finally start their business because they feel like, okay, you know what? I'm just working too many hours for all the wrong people and I, I hate my boss or whatever. Or maybe they get fired and they start their business. And they've heard, you know, how hard it is to become an entrepreneur, how hard it is to, you know, be successful. And they're working 20 hours a day. Something goes wrong and they're like, oh, my God, I should listen to everybody. I'm going to go look for a job. They didn't really take, give themselves a chance, right? Because you're supposed to fail the first time. It's like, yeah. you know, I have a granddaughter now when she's walking, you know, she, she falls back. Sometimes she falls forwards a few times when she gets up because if she never gets up. She'll be, you know, you know what I mean? You're supposed to figure out. So then if you're lucky enough to have somebody like your mom or your wife or your significant other or your brother or sister says, you know what, Timmy, you did all those things right. You know, yeah, you know, this thing you launched, it was disappointing. Nobody showed up, but look what happened. You have an amazing business. Maybe it was a marketing message. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Try another different day. If you f finally get somebody who does that for you and you, get the gumption to try it again and it fails again, 
then you're like, okay, that's it. I, I give up. Well, don't do that. I'm here to tell you, if you stick to it, you will find the right path at some point. And when you do, you, you're going to be so much richer in terms of what value you add to your customers um, and, and your community around you and, and to yourself. You just learn a lot more. I mean, there's no learning when you don't ever fail. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, look at Michael Jordan, not a basketball player. Okay, well, uh, if you, I, I think I read somewhere that they had given him like a Hail Mary shot. I'm sure if you're Michael Jordan, you get a lot of the Hail Mary shots at the end of the like time period, you know? Yeah. And you win or lose a game. And he only made like 30% of those Hail Mary shots. Yep. And he was Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. Um, you look at Babe Ruth, I don't know um, if he's shooting like 4, 450. I don't know what his number is, but let's say be generous, 4, 450. That means more than half the time he didn't, he struck out. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so think about that. And these were the best of the best of the best. So if you don't dare to be the best and you are like, okay, you know what? I'm going to be happy if I hit 300. That means two-thirds of the time you're going to fail. And yeah. you have to embrace that. Because yeah. you, by missing two-thirds of the time, you'll realize which balls you're going to hit, which balls you're not going to hit, which balls are worth taking a chance. Right? So the idea that you're an entrepreneur and you put all your money and you do this stuff and then it's not, it's not like going like gangbusters. Well, hello, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's supposed to not work the first time. I'm not kidding you. Yeah. So. I love that. Well, awesome. If you guys are listening to this and you loved what Victoria had to say, make sure to check out her podcast and buy both her books. Those will be down in the show notes below. I believe one of them isn't out yet. So yeah, they're both not out. VictoriaWick.com. You can come to VictoriaWick.com and it's got all the stuff that I do. And if any of you, I don't have, I don't sell any courses or anything like that. I don't have time to teach courses now. But uh, if any, any of you want like a 30 minute free consultation of whatever you're doing, um, scaling your business, um, I'm going to tell you right now, my expertise in that is people trying to go from seven figures to eight figures. So, you know, a lot, there's a lot of people that teach people how to do whatever, um, you know, try to really struggle through the six first six figures. When you get to seven figures, your stakes are much higher. Like it's much higher. You, you can go bankrupt if you don't handle, you know, the certain way. Um, same thing with the stress level. So that's my expertise, but that doesn't mean that I couldn't help you if you were trying to get to the seven figures. So anytime, you, you know, victoriawick.com, you can check out my books. You can check out my, uh, I do occasionally free webinars, um, complete no strings attached at all. And I'll do, you know, if there's a lot of demand for something, I'll do it, but I don't do it like very often, but once every two months or so. There we go. Yeah. And it's limited to like 50 people. So if there are like uh, a thousand signed up, the first 50 get in. Love it. Love it. Well, on that note, guys, shoot this podcast over to one to three people, you know, need to hear this message, go ahead and give us a five-star review on iTunes if you liked the show. And we'll have to bring Victoria back on because we didn't get to get through all of our questions. But uh, yeah, we'll have to do it another time. And on that note, we're out. Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them. If you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one -on -one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals, make sure to check out the website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, and contact me either there or on social media.
That's all I got. Have a blessed day.